Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Magic and the Moon podcast. As always, I'm your host, David, and this week we're continuing our series on deities, specifically the Olympian pantheon, and we are moving on to Aphrodite. And I'm excited to talk about Aphrodite because similar to Demeter and Persephone, she actually predates the Olympic pantheon itself. She's one of the oldest deities. I'm going to be talking a little bit more about her origins that I have with some of the other gods and goddesses I've mentioned because her history is very rich and elaborate and a little bit complicated. So let's get into it. So Aphrodite is the Greek goddess of love, beauty, passion, and desire. She became syncretized with the Roman goddess Venus, and her major symbols include myrtles, roses, doves, sparrows, and swans. The cult of Aphrodite was largely derived from that of the Phoenician goddess Astarte, who herself was a cognate of the East Semitic goddess Ishtar, who was also based on the Sumerian cult of Inanna. So this is just to show how old this goddess is, even though her form and her name has changed a few times, she has been one of the most widely continuously worshipped deities that there is, um, starting with Ishtar, her original uh, name and cult, and Inanna, and then it kept going and kept going. Um, so her main cult centers in Greece were in Cytheria, Cyprus, Corinth, and Athens, and her main festival was Aphrodisia, which was celebrated annually in midsummer. In Laconia, Aphrodite was worshipped as a warrior goddess, and she was also the patron goddess of prostitutes, which was an association that led some early scholars to kind of give the theory that there was sacred prostitution in the Greco-Roman culture, that that idea has now been more or less discredited. So um, as I have with the others, we're going to reference uh, the Theogony by Hesiod. And according to the Theogony, Aphrodite was born from the sea foam that was produced by Uranus's genitals when his son Cronus castrated them and threw them into the sea. But um, a contrasting origin story found in the Iliad by Homer says that Aphrodite is actually the daughter of Zeus and Dione, who is the Titan goddess of oracles. Plato in his symposium asserts that these two origins belong to two separate entities, Aphrodite Orania, which means the transcendent or heavenly Aphrodite, and Aphrodite Pendemos, meaning the common Aphrodite, the Aphrodite of the people. Um, she had many other epithets as well, each emphasizing a different aspect of the same goddess or used by different local cults. She was called Cytheria and Cyprus, just speaking to her worship in those cults, specifically in Cytheria and Cyprus, of course, because both of those locations claim to be the place that she was born. So in the mythology itself, Aphrodite was married to Hephaestus, the god of the forge, but she was frequently unfaithful to him and had many lovers. And in the Odyssey specifically, she was caught in the act of adultery with the god of war, Ares. And that's probably what she is oftentimes known for. So in the first Homeric hymn to Aphrodite, she seduces the mortal shepherd Anchises. And Aphrodite was also the surrogate mother and lover of the mortal shepherd Adonis, who was eventually killed by a wild boar. Along with Athena and Hera, Aphrodite was one of the three goddesses whose feud began the Trojan War, and she plays a significant role throughout the Iliad. She's often pictured in Western art as a symbol of female beauty, and she's appeared in numerous works of Western literature. She's become a major figure in several different neo-pagan religions, including the Church of Aphrodite, some forms of Wicca, and in Hellenic Reconstructionism, which seeks to um, reconstruct and replicate the worship of the Greek gods 
as best as we can from the mythology and the historical records that we have access to. So let's talk about her name because the actual name of Aphrodite is really interesting and it does kind of speak to that lineage that I was referring to a moment ago. So in Hesiod's Theogony, he takes Aphrodite from Aphros, meaning sea foam, interpreting the name as she who rose from the foam. And this is one reason uh, some scholars have said that the theory that she arose from the sea foam is more likely the correct myth as opposed to her being the child of Zeus. But most modern scholars regard this as maybe not the best etymology, but it is consistent with the mythology. So some early scholars, uh, scholars, excuse me, scholars, some early modern scholars of classical mythology, they attempted to argue that Aphrodite's name was of pre-Indo-European origin, but these efforts have mostly been abandoned. Um, of course, the goddess that is worshipped as Aphrodite is much older um, than the Greek name, but the name specifically of Aphrodite likely is not as old as they were trying to say. So in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, accepting Hesiod's foam etymology as genuine, um, some scholars analyze the second part of her name, meaning wanderer or bright. But more recently, Michael Janda, also accepting Hesiod's etymology, has argued in favor of the latter of these interpretations and claims the story of birth from the foam as an Indo-European mythic theme. And similarly, Christoph Thomas Witzgatz, he proposes that an Indo-European compound of abor and dii means shine, is also referring to Eos, the goddess of the dawn. And there have been some links between the two of them as well, though that has not been widely accepted by scholars. So we talked a little bit about her name, and I really want to get into the origins of Aphrodite and really just emphasize how ancient she is and how connected she is to many different cultures and pantheons, not just Greece. So the cult of Aphrodite in Greece was imported from and influenced by the cult of Astarte in Phoenicia, which in turn was influenced by the cults of the Mesopotamian goddess Ishtar to the East uh, Semitic people and Inanna to the Sumerians. Pausanias states the first to establish a cult of Aphrodite were the Assyrians, followed by the Pathians of Cyprus and the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians in turn taught her worship to the people of Cythera and then eventually her Greek cult was established there. So Aphrodite took on Inanna and Astarte's associations with sexuality and procreation. And furthermore, she was known as Orania, which means heavenly, a title corresponding to Inanna, who was called the queen of heaven. Early artistic and literary portrayals of Aphrodite are extremely similar to Inanna and Ishtar. And like the two of them, Aphrodite was also seen as a warrior goddess in some traditions. And like any deity, um, particularly in the ancient world, their worship did often vary from place to place. So her depictions were not consistent um, in the early mythologies. In the second century common era, the Greek geographer Pausanias said that in Sparta, Aphrodite was worshipped as Aphrodite area, which means warlike. And he also mentions that her most ancient cold statues in Sparta and on Cytheria show her holding weapons. But modern scholars note that Aphrodite's warrior goddess aspects appear in the older records of her worship, linking that to her Near Eastern connections. 19th century classical scholars had a general aversion to the idea of the ancient Greek religion being influenced by the Near East. But even Frederick Weckler argued that the Near Eastern influence on Greek mythology is widely accepted, and it has become accepted since then. 
So some early comparative mythologists opposed to the idea of a Near Eastern origin, they argued that Aphrodite originated as an aspect of Eos, who was a Greek goddess of the dawn, and that she was therefore ultimately derived from the Proto-Indo-European dawn goddess, Heusios, who was called Aurora in Rome, Ushas in India, and Eos in Greek. Most, uh, excuse me, most modern scholars have now rejected the notion of a purely Indo-European Aphrodite, but it is possible that Aphrodite was originally a Semitic deity and that she became influenced by this Indo-European concept of the dawn. And both Aphrodite and Eos were known for their beauty, eroticism, and aggressive sexuality. Both goddesses were associated with the colors of red, white, and gold. And the historian Michael Genda thinks that the etymology of Aphrodite's name may have been epithet of Eos, and that she eventually became a goddess in her own right based on that name. So Aphrodite's most common epithet was Arania, which means heavenly, but this epithet almost never occurs in any literary text, meaning that it was purely significant to the cults only. But another common name for her was Pendemos, which means for all the people. In her role as Aphrodite Pendemos, Aphrodite was associated with Pytho, meaning persuasion, and she could be prayed to for aid and seduction. The character Prosenius's Symposium takes differing cult practices associated with different epithets of the goddess to claim that Orania and Pondemos are in fact separate deities altogether. He asserts that Aphrodite Orania is a celestial or heavenly Aphrodite, born from the sea foam after Cronus castrated Uranus and is the older of the two goddesses. This is the inspiration of male homosexual desire, specifically pederasty and men loving men eroticism. Aphrodite Pendemos, by contrast, is the younger of the goddesses, and she is a common Aphrodite who was born from Zeus and Dione, and she is inspiration for heterosexual desire, and she's the lesser of the two goddesses. And this was their way of kind of justifying and explaining the very, very different origin stories that had been given to Aphrodite at this point. Did she arise from the home of the sea, or did she come into being through birth by Zeus and Dione. And this was that scholar's particular attempt at kind of making peace with those different accounts by basically saying that they're two different goddesses with the same name. But among the Neoplatonists, later on, some of their Christian interpreters, Arania is associated with a spiritual love and Pendemos the physical love. So instead of it being homoerotic and heteroerotic, it became spiritual love and physical lower love. A representation of Arania with her foot resting on a tortoise came to be seen as emblematic of discretion and conjugal love. It was the subject of a chryselephantine sculpture by Phidias, known only from a parenthetical comment by the geographer Pausanias. So let's talk about the actual worship of Aphrodite. Let's talk about how people interacted with her in Greece. So her main festival was Aphrodisia, which was celebrated mostly in Greece, but especially in Athens and Corinth. In Athens, the Aphrodisia was celebrated on the fourth day of the month of Hecatombion. And this was roughly in the fifth and fourth centuries. And we don't perfectly understand what time of year this was now. Um, but some people think that it was anywhere from July to October, what we would now call July to October. So anywhere in that month gap. Um, during this festival, the priests of Aphrodite would purify the temple 
on the southwestern slope of the Acropolis with the blood of a sacrificed dove. Then the altars would be anointed, and the statues of Aphrodite, Pendemos, and Pytho would be escorted in a majestic procession to a place where they would be ritually bathed. Aphrodite was also honored in Athens as part of Erephoria Festival. The fourth day of every month was also said to be sacred to her. Pausanias records that in Sparta, Aphrodite was worshipped as Aphrodite Aria, which means warlike. This epithet stresses her connection to Ares, with who she had relations, even though she was married to Hephaestus. Pausanias also records that in Sparta and on Cythera, a number of extremely ancient cult statues of Aphrodite portray her carrying weapons. Aphrodite was a patron goddess of prostitutes of all varieties, ranging from Pornai, which meant inexpensive uh, street prostitutes, which were usually owned as slaves, or Heterai, which meant expensive and well-educated companions who were usually self-employed, and they acted more as a companion, but that did sometimes include a sexual function. In the city of Corinth, it was renowned throughout the ancient world for its many prostitutes, who had a reputation for being amongst the most skilled, but also the most expensive in the world. Corinth also had a major temple to Aphrodite, located on the Corinth which is the main center of her cult. Records of numerous dedications to Aphrodite made by successful courtesans have survived in poems and in pottery inscriptions. The references to the goddess in association with prostitution are also found in Corinth, as well as the islands of Cyprus, Cythera, and Sicily. And Aphrodite, one of her many, I guess we'll say precursors, uh, being Inanna and Astarte, they were also associated very closely with prostitution. So this is a characteristic she borrowed from her earlier forms. So scholars in the 19th and 20th centuries believed that the cults of Aphrodite may have involved ritual prostitution, an assumption based on ambiguous passages in certain ancient texts, particularly in a fragment of Scolion by the poet Pindar, which mentions prostitutes in Corinth in association with Aphrodite. But modern scholars now, uh, they've dismissed this notion of virtual prostitution, and they think that doesn't really have enough basis in fact. So during the Hellenistic period, the Greeks identified Aphrodite with the ancient Egyptian goddesses Hathor and Isis. Aphrodite was the patron goddess of the Lake of Queens, and Queen Arisino II was identified as her mortal incarnation. She was also worshipped in Alexandria and had numerous temples in and around the city. Arsenal II introduced the cult of Adonis to Alexandria, and many of the women there partook in it. The Tesserocontheris, a gigantic catamaran galley designed by Archimedes for Ptolemy, had a circular temple to Aphrodite on it with a marble statue of the goddess herself. In the 2nd century BCE, Ptolemy VIII and his wives Cleopatra II and III dedicated a temple to Aphrodite Hathor at Philae. Statuettes of Aphrodite for personal devotion became very common in Egypt during this period and extended until way after Egypt had become a province of Rome. The Romans identified Aphrodite with their goddess Venus, who was originally more so associated with agricultural fertility as well as vegetation in springtime. She didn't really have the connotations of sensuality and love like Aphrodite did. And early on, the Roman goddess Venus would actually have been more akin to Persephone or Demeter. But after the Romans came in contact with the Greeks and they associated Venus with Aphrodite, she absorbed those characteristics that we know her as having now. So according to the Roman history uh, the historian Levy, Aphrodite and Venus were officially identified in the 3rd century BCE when the cult of Venus Asenia was introduced to Rome from the Greek sanctuary of Aphrodite in Sicily.
After this point, Romans adopted Aphrodite's iconography and myth and then applied them to Venus. Because Aphrodite was the mother of the Trojan hero Aeneas in Greek mythology, the Roman tradition claimed that Aeneas is the founder of Rome. Venus became venerated as Venus Genetrix, as the mother of the entire Roman nation. Julius Caesar claimed to be directly descended from Aphrodite, and he became a strong proponent of the cult of Venus. This precedent was followed by his nephew Augustus, and some emperors that followed claimed that succession as well. This syncretism greatly impacted the Greek worship of Aphrodite. During the Roman era, the cult of Aphrodite in many Greek cities began to emphasize her relationship with Troy and Aeneas. They also began to adopt distinctively Roman elements, portraying Aphrodite as more material, more militaristic, and more concerned with administration and bureaucracy. She was claimed as a divine guardian by many political figures, and appearances of Aphrodite in Greek literature also vastly proliferated, usually showing Aphrodite in a very Roman way. So we've discussed her name, her very complex origins, and some of her worship. Let's talk about the mythology and the stories now. Because Aphrodite is usually said to have been born near Paphos on the island of Cyprus, which is why sometimes she is called Cyprian, especially in the poetic works of Sappho. So Aphrodite is consistently portrayed as nubile, infinitely desirable, and having had no childhood. She's only ever depicted as an adult. We never have any kind of record or account of her being a child or anything of the like. She's always been a mature and desirable figure. She's often depicted nude, and in the Iliad, Aphrodite is apparently the unmarried consort of Ares, the god of war. But the wife of Hephaestus is said to be a different goddess named Charis. Likewise, Hesiod's Theogony, Aphrodite is unmarried, and the wife of Hephaestus is Aglia, the youngest of the three Cherites. In Book 8 of the Odyssey, however, the blind singer Demodocus describes Aphrodite as the wife of Hephaestus and tells how she committed adultery with Ares during the Trojan War. The sun god Helios saw Ares and Aphrodite having sex in Hephaestus's bed and warned Hephaestus, who fashioned a net of gold. And I'm just going to stop for a second and point out how crazy that is, because not only are you going to cheat on your husband with his brother, but you're going to do it in your husband's bed. That's pretty wild. And if you didn't know, Ares and Hephaestus uh, are brothers. They're both sons of Zeus and Hera. So basically, uh, she was having an affair with her brother-in-law, if you think about it. Anyways, <laughs> uh, Hephaestus was warned um, by Helios, and he fashioned a net of gold. The next time Ares and Aphrodite were having sex, the net trapped them both. Hephaestus brought all the gods into the bedchamber to laugh at them, but Apollo, Hermes, and Poseidon took pity on them, and Poseidon agreed to pay Hephaestus to release them. Humiliated, Aphrodite returned to Cyprus, where she was attended by the Cherites, and this narrative probably originated as a Greek folktale, but by the time it took place and was recorded in the Odyssey, it became well-established as a myth. Later stories were invented to explain Aphrodite's marriage to Hephaestus, in the most famous story, Zeus hastily married Aphrodite to Hephaestus in order to prevent the gods from fighting over her. In a different version of the same myth, Hephaestus gave his mother Hera a golden throne, but when she sat on it, she became trapped, and she refused to let him go until she agreed to give him Aphrodite's hand in marriage. Hephaestus was overjoyed to be married to the goddess of love and beauty, and he forged her beautiful jewelry, including Astrophion. And Astrophion was kind of like an undergarment. It was um, not quite a bra, but it was intended to kind of support a woman's breasts, basically. Um, so he made her one of those, <laughs> among other things. 
and um, it made her even more irresistible to men, is how the story goes. Aphrodite is almost always accompanied by Eros, who is the god of lust and sexual desire. In his Theogony, Hesiod describes Eros as one of the four original primeval forces born at the beginning of the universe. But after the birth of Aphrodite from the sea foam, he is joined by Himeros, and together they become Aphrodite's constant companions. In early Greek art, Eros and Himeros are both shown as idealized, handsome young men with wings. The Greek lyrical poets regarded the power of both of them as being dangerous, compulsive, and impossible for anyone to resist. But in modern times, Eros is often seen as Aphrodite's son. But this is a particular later addition to the mythology because up until somewhat recently, um, Eros was said to be kind of the primordial god of sexuality and desire and is actually older than Aphrodite. But a more recent invention has been that he was her son. So that's not really consistent with the mythology. It's a newer idea. Um, but Aphrodite was also attended by the three Cherites, whom Hesiod identified as daughters of Zeus and Euronomy. And their names were Aglaea, which was splendor, Eurosiphony, which was good cheer, and Thalia, which meant abundance. The Charities have been worshipped as goddesses of Greece since the beginning of Greek history, long before Aphrodite became a part of the pantheon. And her other set of attendants were the three Ore, which means ours. And Hesiod identifies them as daughters of Zeus and Themis, and their names are Eumonia, meaning good order, Daiki, meaning justice, and Arini, which meant peace. And she was also sometimes accompanied by Harmonia, which is her daughter by Ares, and Hebe, the daughter of Zeus and Hera. So she had several different affairs, children, lovers, things like that. I don't really have time to get super in-depth into all that today um, for the sake of time. But she was a central figure in the Trojan War, and her feud with Athena and Hera was considered to be the cause of the Trojan War. Um, but in summary, she was the frequent lover of Ares, and they had Phobos, Deimos, Harmonia, as well as Pothos, Himeros, Eros, and Anteros, according to some versions of the myth. She was also a lover of the mortal man Adonis, and she bore him three children, Bero, Golgus, and Priapus. She was a lover of Hermes, and they had Hermaphroditos, Priapus, and Rhodos, and to her husband Hephaestus, they had no children together, as far as we know. And with Poseidon, she had Rhodos, and she was a lover of Dionysus, who they had several children, including the three Charities, as well as Priapus, Iacus, and Hemonios, and that's the most widely known lovers that she had. She had some others as well, um, but those are the more important ones and the more well-documented ones. So let's talk about the culture of Aphrodite after the classical period. Um, her modern worship, for example. So in 1938, Gleb Botkin, a Russian immigrant to the United States, founded the Church of Aphrodite, which is a neo-pagan religion centered around the worship of a mother goddess, whom its practitioners refer to as Aphrodite. The Church of Aphrodite's theology was laid out in the book In Search of Reality, published in 1969, just two years before Botkin's death. The book portrayed Aphrodite in a drastically different light than the one in which the Greeks envisioned her, instead casting her as the sole goddess of a somewhat neoplatonic pagan monotheism. It claimed that the worship of Aphrodite had been brought to Greece by the mystic teacher Orpheus, but that the Greeks had misunderstood his teachings and not realized the importance of worshiping Aphrodite alone. Aphrodite is also a major deity in some forms of eclectic Wicca, and they regard her as an aspect of the great goddess. And this, of course, is not referring to traditional British Wicca, but in some eclectic traditions, uh, she is revered 
as a goddess, and she's frequently invoked by name during several enchantments or spells dealing with love and romance. They often regard her as the ruler of human emotions, eroticism, creativity, spirituality, and art. And as one of the 12 Olympians, she is a major deity within Hellenic polytheistic reconstructionism, which seeks to authentically revive and recreate the religion of ancient Greece. And unlike eclectics or Wiccans, Hellenists are usually very strictly polytheistic or sometimes pantheistic, and they venerate Aphrodite primarily as the goddess of romantic love, but also as the goddess of sexuality, the sea, and war. And her many titles include Seaborn, the killer of men, she upon the graves, the far sailing, and the ally in war. And that's all I have for you this week. We'll be back next Monday, and I will see you then.